almighty, all-knowing and all-loving. Before the mists of the beginning, you were there, and long after this world winds up and finishes, you will be. There is nothing that is too hard for you, nothing that is hidden away from your sight. Father, you're always just and kind in your dealings with us. We deserved your enmity for our sin, but instead you have shown us mercy. Father, you made us in your image. You spoke and it came into being. Our understanding reflects just a glimpse of your wisdom. Our ability to love and to have compassion reflects just a glimpse of your grace and your mercy. Father, we praise you for we are wondrously and fearfully made. And yet, Father, we turned away from you and yet you sent your Son to call us back. In Jesus, you became one of us and dwelt in our midst. You proclaimed good news to the poor and healed the sick. You called the outcast and the sinner back to friendship with you. Father, we recognize that our sins are forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross, and that we can have new and eternal life because you raised him from the dead. Father, we thank you that by your Spirit you dwell within us. Father, we thank you that you're a just and a righteous God. And we confess before you that we have sinned. We don't love as you love. We've broken our promises. We've broken relationships. We do not value your image in others and we've left undone the good that you've called us to do. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. Father, we rejoice that there is hope because of your great love. There is hope for us, O Lord, because of your Son, Jesus, that if we confess our sins, we know that you are faithful and just and will forgive us. Father, we thank you that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and you make us new. Father, today we hear that good news that we're forgiven and invited to make a clean start. Father, we would ask that you would fill us afresh with your Spirit. Help us to reflect you clearly to all around us, and would you bind us together in love? Would you empower us to witness for you and for your good news that the world you love may know more of you and that we may work with you to see your kingdom come. In all of these things, Father, we pray that the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit would be made known. Amen. Now, most Sunday mornings when we meet together, we take some time in our service to find out a little bit about what goes on in church life here that may not be visible to you if uh, you spend most of your time in church just within this part uh, of our building. Now, many of you will know that uh, each Sunday morning we have a crash running throughout our morning service for our very youngest children, and then uh, as they get a wee bit older, they'll spend some time in here with us, and then they go out to Sunday club and in due course to, to Bible class. But what some of you might know is that there's a, a little group that meet for those that are just in between crash 
and Sunday Club. It's a, a Sunday Club beginner's class, and today we're going to hear a little bit about what they do at that little transition phase in their life. So Susan Spence, who's one of the teachers in that class, is going to come up and tell us a little bit about the beginner's class. Now, I think we'll think with this microphone yet, Susan, so we're going to swap okay. this one here. So, Susan, can you tell us uh, what age group the, the beginner's class covers? Okay, uh, beginner's class is for anybody who's had their third birthday. So if you're three or over, you can come along to beginner's class. Now, I recognize this is a bank holiday, so there may be lots of families away today, but is there anybody here who's in that class, anybody who's three who goes to the beginner's Sunday class? Who, can they put their hands up? Can we see who you are? There's one, two, three. There's quite a few that are here today. So they're going to leave us in a few minutes' time to go out to the beginner's Sunday class. Susan, tell us a wee bit uh, what a normal Sunday in the beginner's Sunday class looks like. Okay. Um, there probably isn't a normal Sunday in beginner's class. Um, it kind of just comes as it is. Um, we have 13 three-year-olds in the books now, so it's always very, very busy. And every week we do a few games at the start to try and burn off a bit of energy. And then we have a story, juice and biscuits, and some craft. Um, so each week we're trying to just cover a well-known Bible story or just a simple, you know, God loves you, you know, anything, just simple stories and simple messages for the kids. Okay, and then finally, this morning you're, you're meeting. Can you give us just a wee bit about what you've planned for this morning? Because we're going to get to pray for you later on, so it'd be good to know what you're, you're going to do today. Okay, so this morning we're going to do the story of Joseph or do some parts of the story of Joseph, and we'll be doing a colouring in sheet with Joseph's multicoloured coat, and then the kids will make a little Joseph to take home. And our message this morning is, God wants us to forgive people. Great. Thanks, Susan. So later on, as I say, we're going to get a chance to, to pray for the beginners uh, Sunday club class, but remember them uh, as they meet this morning to, to talk about Joseph. Now, in a moment, uh, those children that are with us this morning for the beginners class, uh, and the ones who are also going out just to the bigger Sunday club, and Bible class are going to leave us. But before they do, uh, let's stand together and sing uh, one more time. We're going to sing the song, 10,000 Reasons.
Okay, so if you're in, in Sunday club or Bible class, this is the time to slip out now. This morning we're going to be continuing our studies. We've recently been looking at the book of Jonah, and we're going to be continuing uh, to look at that, uh, that book uh, later on. Uh, in a moment, Catherine Lindsay's going to come and read uh, this morning's passages to us. There's two passages to look at this morning. So you need to, if you're going to use the Bible in the pew, you need to put your finger uh, in a, a couple of places. So we're going to start off, and Catherine's first of all going to read from Jonah chapter 3, uh, and you'll find that at page 928, 928. Jonah chapter 3, uh, and then we're going to slip over to the New Testament and to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32, and you'll find that at page 1043, 1043, so 928, and then 1043. Catherine. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. The sign of Jonah in Luke 11. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. 
Thanks, Catherine. In a moment, Sam's going to come and open those passages to us. Before he does, so we're going to sing again one last time. We're going to stand and sing, Speak, O Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you want to pick up your Bibles and turn back to Jonah chapter 3 to start with. Over the last few weeks, we've been following the prophet Jonah and the mission that God gave him uh, to go and preach to this great Assyrian city of Nineveh. And if you remember, Jonah didn't want to do that mission, and so he ran away from God the opposite direction. He ran to sea. And last week, we saw that God saved Jonah from drowning when God sent that great fish to rescue him. And we saw that after experiencing God's salvation, Jonah has some kind of change of heart. Not quite sure exactly what it is. But what it does mean is that when God's word comes to Jonah a second time in the first verse of our passage, 
Jonah goes, verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, we don't know how long it took Jonah to get to Nineveh. Um, We shouldn't imagine that the whale or the fish kind of vomited Jonah up just outside the city. He would have been somewhere on the shore of the eastern Mediterranean. He'd have had several days or weeks of journeying to get to Nineveh. But today, he finally arrives at this great city. Did you pick up how often it was called a great city or a very important city? In our language today, it's one of the big cities of the world. Think of a place like New York. Think of a place like London uh, or Shanghai. That's the kind of thoughts that we ought to have as we're thinking about Nineveh. Uh, I used to live in London, and I went back um, maybe six months ago, something like that, and I can remember sitting on the DLR, the Docklands Light Railway. And if you know it, it kind of goes around uh, the Canary Wharf area of London, where there's lots of massive skyscrapers and banks. And this DLR is quite a fun thing, because it's, it's an automated train system. So you just sit on it, and it takes you to wherever you want to go. And it, you wind in and out of all the skyscrapers in amongst all the docks. And I can't help being impressed as I sit on that DLR at just man's ingenuity, our power, our achievement, what we're able to create. It's, it's both an awe-inspiring sight going around that DLR and also a beautiful sight, I think, seeing the, the, the glittering water of the dock, the sun on the skyscrapers. I wonder if those sorts of thoughts are the thoughts that Jonah would have had as he gazed up at this big city of Nineveh, a place of human achievement, of human potential, but also probably a place where it didn't feel like God, the God of Israel, was very big. I don't know if you've ever wandered around a big city and felt like in some ways, amongst all this human achievement, God can seem quite small. Well, this is Jonah's big moment as he comes to this big city of Nineveh. Let's pick up the story in the middle of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Well, you might have been expecting, as you read through this passage this morning, uh, a a sort of talk about Jonah's evangelistic strategy. How does Jonah go and transform this big city? I've actually heard a number of talks uh, on those sort of lines, and actually I was expecting to give that sort of talk this morning. Now, there's perhaps something to glean uh, from Jonah about evangelism. But when we read the Bible, we want to be putting the emphasis where the Spirit puts the emphasis, where he puts the spotlight. And I'm not sure that this week the focus is on Jonah. Uh, His prophecy gets just half a verse. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's it. Every Every other prophet, most of their book is their prophecy. Jonah's just half a verse. And then if you just scan your eyes down the top of the next column, the rest of chapter 3, Jonah's not mentioned at all. He's gone. It's almost like the stage has been cleared and the spotlight is allowed to fall on the encounter between God, the God of Israel, and this big city of Nineveh. So that's what we're going to look at today. What happens when a sophisticated, godless city encounters God's word? And the outcome, I think, is is pretty surprising, isn't it? We would struggle to imagine this happening in one of the great cities of our world today, at Belfast or London even. So what we're going to do is just go through the rest of the passage and look at three surprises in this passage and see what we can learn from how God's word comes to this city. Well, the first surprise is in how this city is saved. 
Jonah preaches this message that God gives him. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. A shocking message, a message of judgment, a surprising message to this proud city. No mention of repentance even, no mention of faith, no mention even of God or his mercy. But look at verse 5. Instantly, the Ninevites believed God. The city is saved because it believes God's word. And this is so surprising that a lot of people will question whether this can even be true. How could it be that this big city of Nineveh would ever bother to listen to a random Jewish prophet coming from hundreds of miles away? It just sounds ridiculous. Well, various more conservative commentators try to explain this. Um, and they, they sort of say there might have been various catastrophes, maybe, that had been happening uh, before Jonah came to preach. Um, and there's, you know, there's historical evidence for some of that. Things like an eclipse might have happened, which would have been an omen of doom. Now, I think there's a good instinct there. We want to assume that the Bible is true, and we can use every resource we've got to try and see that. But the thing is, when I looked at the text, I couldn't find any evidence of that, really, in this passage. In fact, it almost seems like the opposite is going on, doesn't it? It seems like the author is deliberately blunt. He says, Jonah preaches, verse 4, and the Ninevites believed God. Verse 5, just like that. He almost deliberately seems to be saying this is something supernatural. One man brings God's word to this city, this vast city, and it's like time speeds up, and in a flash, everyone is fasting, from the well-off elites, the bankers, uh, all the way down to the out-of-work labourers, from the greatest to the least of them. So this city is saved because God's word has got surprising power. Well, I don't know about you, but when I think of the book of Jonah, I tend to think of uh, sea. I tend to think of that, that episode where Jonah runs away to sea and the sort of smell of sea salt and seaweed gets into my nostrils as, as I think about Jonah. And if you know anything about the, the Jewish attitude to the sea, you'll know that they didn't really like the sea. The Jewish people were never a great seafaring nation. They thought of the sea as the place of chaos. It was the wilderness. It was the place where people were out of control. You didn't go to sea unless you had to. But when Jonah runs away to sea, what we've discovered over the past couple of weeks, I think, is that God is in control, even at sea. He's able to send that great wind that causes the storm. And then he's able to save that great fish to save Jonah. And he just calms the storm, just like that. God is the Lord, even of the chaos. That's the first half of Jonah. But that's only the first half, because Jonah carries on. And you can see at the end of chapter 2 that the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land. And that sets us up for the second half of the book. Um, and if the, if the sea represents chaos and wilderness and being out of control, the dry land for a Jewish person would have represented civilization, the place where humans are in control, where we can flourish and be secure. And the place that represents that the most is the city. If you've been with us on our uh, Sunday evenings recently where we've been looking at the city, we found that in the Bible, cities are the place of human achievement, of our success, of flourishing. And so when Jonah goes to Nineveh, I wonder what we expect. I wonder if actually we expect God to be even less in control, even less able to save. Why? Because this is the place where humans are in control where we're doing well, where we're flourishing, where we're secure, sophisticated, successful. 
I wonder if we expect when Jonah goes to Nineveh that God's word will just be drowned out amidst the noise of all the other things that are happening in that city. But what happens? Well, Jonah speaks God's word. And these civilized, urbane, canny, sophisticated city dwellers believe God. So I think the message of this first bit of Jonah, the first surprise, is that God's word has got surprising power. Even sophisticated city dwellers are saved through faith in God's word. In 1997, Dr. Rosaria Champagne was somebody who was entrenched in our modern, secular, sophisticated elite. She was a professor of English literature at a top university in America. She specialised in radical feminist literary theory. I don't really know what that is, but it sounds pretty intimidating. Um, She was a faculty advisor to the student uh, LGBT group. Uh, She opened up her home every Thursday night to the gay community, and people came round for dinner and chat. Uh, She enjoyed a secure job. Uh, She shared two homes with her long-term girlfriend. And she thought that Christians were bad thinkers and dangerous thinkers. She wrote an article in her local newspaper critiquing the religious right. And she got so much mail from this that she had to create two boxes on her desk. One box was for all the fan mail that she got, and one box was for all the hate mail. But she got one letter that she couldn't categorise at all. And it came from the pastor of a local Reformed Presbyterian church. And he was simply asking her why did she think what she thought. And she found she couldn't put this letter in either of the boxes. It bugged her so much that eventually she rang him up and had a chat to him. And eventually went round his house and met his wife and had dinner with them. And after that, she found that she couldn't put Christianity aside. It got into her. It bugged her. She found herself reading and rereading the Bible, as you might expect an English literature professor to do. Well, in 2012, she wrote uh, this book, which I've been reading this week. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English professor's journey into Christian faith. What I like about this book is it doesn't present her conversion as in any way simple or trite. It was complicated and messy. She says it was chaos, actually. Um, And there's one quote in it that really struck me and seemed to summarise the whole thing up. She said, The word of God had gotten to be bigger inside of me than I was. Bigger by about the size of a hair. What had changed in this sophisticated, secular person? The word of God had got inside of her. Now, we don't know how messy or complicated this Ninevite conversion was. We don't know how many questions were thrown at Jonah as he he told them that their city was going to be overturned. But what we do know is that the word of God got inside of them, thousands of them, well, I wonder, can we imagine it doing, it doing that here in Belfast? Can we imagine the word of God getting inside thousands and thousands of us, changing us? It's hard to imagine, isn't it, quite frankly? And we might be thinking, well, at least these Ninevites had Jonah, a prophet sent from God. That would be good, wouldn't it, to have a few prophets sent from God in Belfast? Um, But let's not forget what Jesus says in our second reading that we had this morning. Um, I won't ask you to turn to it now. We'll do that in a minute. But Jesus says that the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And he says, now one greater than Jonah is here. And he's talking about himself. 
Uh, today, the church is celebrating the day of Pentecost. Many churches worldwide are celebrating that. And we've got our new banner up. I think that's because it's the day of Pentecost. Well, do you remember how when we were in the book of Acts a few months ago, we were looking at the day of Pentecost? And do you remember how we saw that Pentecost means that the spirit of Jesus has come on all of the followers of Jesus now? It actually makes us all into prophets. We're people filled with the spirit of Jesus and we have the words of Jesus now. And whenever people who are filled with the spirit of Jesus speak the words of Jesus, one greater than Jonah is still preaching. He's still preaching today. Jesus is here in Belfast and he is preaching when every one of us talks about Jesus. One greater than Jonah is still here. And just one example of that um, before we move on from this point. Um, A few months back, I was sharing with you that I was preaching at a lunchtime service down in the city centre of Belfast. And I got an email after I preached from somebody who was there out of the blue, just saying, thank you very much for the talk. And we got emailing backwards and forwards, and I said, oh, would you like to meet up for lunch? Well, just a couple of weeks ago, we got round to meeting for lunch at last. And I was very surprised to discover that he actually hadn't been a Christian when, we, uh, when I first went down and met him at that lunchtime talk. Uh, he was somebody in his mid-30s, uh, a family man with two kids, and a regular churchgoer all his life. But he, he said that he always knew that it wasn't really something that was for him. He felt like it was happening at arm's length. When he heard the, the singing, or he, when he sung, and when he heard the Bible being read, he knew that it wasn't something that he was quite involved in. Um, but... Recently, about six months ago, a friend of his, a close friend, became a Christian. And he realized that he needed to investigate this for himself. And so he, uh, he got reading loads of Christian books, and he found this lunchtime service as well as his regular service and started going. He was really hungry to find out what was going on. Um, and he said that he uh, committed his life to Jesus after he heard a sermon in his normal church on Sunday, the church that he'd been sitting in for years, where he heard the pastor say um, that we don't want to, if we've had an encounter with Jesus, we don't want to ignore that. We need to do something about that. Just a simple point, just an aside as part of a sermon um, about Jesus. And he, he was convicted by that, and he gave his life to Jesus that Easter. Um, and he, he said that when he started telling people at work what had happened to him, people were very surprised. Some people were sort of like, well, that's fine, that's great for you, well done. But quite a few people were, were really intrigued because they didn't expect somebody like him to become a Christian. There was no crisis. There was no dramatic kind of intervention. He was just a regular guy in the middle of a secure, stable part of his life. And yet the word of God got inside of him and he couldn't get away from it. And he was changed. Well, that's just one example of what the preaching of the one who is greater than Jonah is doing here in our city today, and I'm sure there's lots more examples. But we need to move on to the second surprise, and that is what this leads to. Um, This is in verses 6 to 9, and we can see there that this is all about the king of Nineveh, uh, who responds to God's word, and then he makes a proclamation, and we have the text of that proclamation. Now, in some ways, this is going over the same ground as what we just saw, God's word is powerful to bring change. But the focus here, I think, is on the depth of that change. So have a look closely with me at verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, 
covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. It's almost like time is slowing down now and we're seeing the king rising from his throne and then going and taking a seat in the dust. We see him exchanging his royal robes for sackcloth, something that, a prickly fabric that you wear when you want to express how repentant you are. And this is our second surprise, I think. God's word brings a change so deep in people that even the power-hungry, successful king of Nineveh wants to give up his throne. He wants to get off his throne and go and sit in the dust when he hears God's word. And this, I think, is a great picture of repentance. Um, The Australian evangelist John Chapman defines repentance like this. He says, Repentance is changing our minds about who is in charge of the world and of our lives and resolving to live under the rule of Jesus. Repentance is changing our minds about who's in charge and resolving to live under the rule of Jesus. And we see the first part of that, I think, as this king steps off his throne. He gives up his right to be in control. And then we see the second part in his proclamation. Have a look at verse 7. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I'm guessing that king made many proclamations, but I guess that not many were like this one, a proclamation uh, that he wanted his population to enthrone God, put the God of Israel on the throne, and to turn from their evil ways. And this is something so complete that even the animals are included. Did you notice that? They are told that they're going to be having to fast and not eat or drink and they need to wear sackcloth as well. That obviously sounds a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? Um, But actually, you can find examples of just this kind of thing in other Assyrian decrees from the time. And it just seems to be the Assyrian way of saying that this is going to be for everyone. The whole economy, the whole ecosystem, their whole world is going to recognise God's right to rule. Well, I find this astonishing. I don't know about you. And... I kind of ask myself, do I believe that this can happen still? Well, I could give you examples from that book of how um, that lady, Rosaria Butterfield, Rosaria Champagne, changed and dramatically brought her life under Jesus' rule. But I don't want to spend all my time doing that because actually this is not something that just pagans have to do. In our Spirit-Filled Church series, um, Richie was showing us that the Spirit-Filled Church is one that's repenting all the time. Um, And that is exactly the point that Jesus makes when he talks about Jonah. So if you've closed it, can you turn back to Luke chapter 11? It's on page 1043. Page 1043. Um, And have a look at verse 30. Jesus says, For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, 
So also will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus is saying, if the Ninevites repented at Jonah's preaching, well, how much more should anyone who hears Jesus' words be repenting at his teaching? Um, And that's, I think, a very helpful point, and it it helps us to understand why Jonah was written. Jonah, if you remember, if you think about it, wasn't really written to Ninevites. It tells us the story about Nineveh, but it was written for God's people. And what is going on as we're listening to this story of Nineveh repenting? I think we're seeing a bit of a benchmark for ourselves. One commentator says that the people of Israel had never, at this point in their history, repented so deeply as these Ninevites did, these pagans. And that's what Jesus is saying. As disciples of Jesus, are we as repentant as these pagan Ninevites? Or are they putting us to shame? We need to dethrone ourselves and let Jesus be in control of our lives. We need to give up whatever it is we're taking a grip on and allow Jesus to rule instead of it. And we'll find that if we start doing that, this is as complicated and as messy for us as it would be for any pagan. And we won't be able to do it ourselves. And the Ninevites, I think, give us a good hint on where to start. Uh, The king of Nineveh says that we need to call out urgently on God and ask for his help to change us. Well, the king's decree ends with a question. If you can turn back to Jonah now, and we'll finish up in Jonah. The king's decree ends with a question, um, verse 9. He says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I'm not sure. The Ninevites are saying that they're just not sure what's going to happen. They're not thinking that their repentance is somehow going to twist God's arm or make it definite that he is going to forgive them. They're saying, we don't know. All we can do is throw ourselves on God's will. And this is our third surprise then. It has to do with why these Ninevites are ultimately saved. Well, let's see what happens in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So when the Ninevites throw themselves on God's will, they find a God who is full of compassion, a God who wants to forgive them. And for Jonah, this isn't actually a surprise at all. Jonah becomes very angry about this, um, and he but he says that it wasn't, he doesn't become angry because it was a surprise. In fact, he knew that this was going to happen all along. Just skip into next week's chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah says to God, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Well, we'll find out more about that next week as Christoph opens up the final bit of Jonah. But the point is, for now, that this action that God did in Nineveh wasn't out of the ordinary for him. It was part of his character. God is a compassionate and gracious God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as in heaven. 
I don't know about you, but I often find that quite a scary prayer to pray. I don't know if I always want God's will to be done in my life. I'm not sure that I always want his will to be done for my friends and my family. Because I kind of think God's will will be tough or harsh. I kind of have to work quite hard to to remember that God isn't a God who loves to send people to judgment. I I don't know about you, but for me, this is a surprise here, that God is more compassionate than I expect. His will is good. This week we saw uh, Prince Charles shaking hands with Gerry Adams. And obviously we all know that Gerry Adams has been accused of various terrorist offences. Well, imagine if Gerry Adams had done something similar to these Ninevites. He had sort of repented of his alleged offences and, and turned away from them. Well, how would we imagine God treating Gerry Adams when he comes face to face with Gerry Adams? Would we imagine a sort of an awkward handshake Would we imagine God kind of grilling Jerry Adams? Did you really repent? Are you really sorry for all that you did? Or would we imagine God running up to Jerry Adams, giving him a warm handshake, a big hug, and telling him that he's forgiven? And that's brilliant. I find myself having to check myself as I'm saying that, to think, am I getting that right, you know? But I think that is right. God is a God of compassion, a God abounding in love. Um, God tells us elsewhere in the Bible that he, he doesn't look at wrath and mercy as kind of two equally good things. God says that he does not desire the death of the wicked. He doesn't desire the death of the wicked. We must talk about judgment. Jonah did. But God doesn't desire it. And this is the ultimate reason why Nineveh is saved. It's not because their repentance somehow earns it. It's because all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, God sent Jonah to Nineveh to call out against it because he hoped that they would turn around and repent when they heard the preaching of Jonah. Friends, let's not make the mistake of thinking that this is just for the Ninevites. We've been looking at the New Testament, we've been talking about Jesus, and... Above all, the New Testament tells us that it is in Jesus that we see God's compassion and his love, as well as his justice. God sent Jesus to come and die for us. He comes towards us with arms outstretched, showing us his compassion and his steadfast love. Well, let's uh, finish there. Uh, Just a brief thing to wrap up. Let's try and draw this together. What happens then in this chapter? The Ninevites encounter uh, God... And I think there's a few surprises. God's word is more powerful than we expect. It's able to get under the skin, even of these pagan Ninevites. Um, And his rule is more universal than we expect. It's recognized even by pagan Ninevites in the heart of the city. And finally, God's will is more gracious. It's more good than we expect. God even has compassion on the city of Nineveh. And I take it that means he'll have the compassion on the city of Belfast and on every one of us if we turn to him the way these Ninevites did. Well, next week we're going to find out how Jonah responded to this kind of God. Uh, But for now, let's pray, shall we, and talk to God ourselves.
Who knows? Perhaps God may have mercy on us and with compassion uh, turn and, and heal us. Father God, we recognise this morning that salvation and judgment, wrath and mercy, death and life are in your hands. You, Lord, do as you please. And Lord, we praise you for that. And we thank you that when you do what you want, that you do it with compassion and graciousness and goodness. We thank you that you love to hold back from wrath and to pour out your love. Father, we pray for our city. Uh, We pray for the many people here in the city who don't know you and ask that they would turn uh, and come towards you and look to you for mercy. And Father, we pray this for ourselves. Father, we pray that we would learn from these Ninevites and their repentance and that we would enthrone you at the heart of our lives in every way. And we pray that you would give us more and more a bigger sense of your compassion and your mercy, above all, as we look at Jesus. And we pray that all in his name. Amen. We're going to take up our offering now um, as we sing our next song. So we'll stay seated for the first couple of verses while we take up the offering. Uh, We're going to sing that song that we learned last week, Behold Our God. Stay, Stay seated and then I'll invite us to stand.
I've got a few announcements um, in the life of our church family to share now. Uh, just before I do that, just to say, um, so I've read this book this week, uh, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. If that interests you, do have a look, at, look it up um, and maybe think about taking it away with you on your summer holidays. It's quite short. I was able to read it in just this week um, and I, I found it very profound, very moving. I actually found myself um, with tears in my eyes towards the final couple of pages, which is pretty rare for me when I'm reading a book. So do recommend that very highly. Okay, and that, um, other notices. We had our World Development Appeal last Sunday, a couple of weeks ago. Um, please do keep giving to that, and you'll find that envelopes are scattered around in various pews. So if you want to contribute to that, do take the opportunity to do that. This week, we've got our Faith Academy series, uh, number three out of four this evening. We'll be meeting in here 7 p.m., so do come and join us for that if you've been coming to those. We're sorry to say that um, Elmer Beasley has died uh, over the past week uh, after a fairly long illness. Uh, her funeral is going to be taking place here on Tuesday uh, this week at 10.30 in Kirkpatrick. And our thoughts and our prayers are with David and the rest of his family as they mourn Elmer. Uh, also coming up in this coming week, uh, there's a coffee morning for Stephen and Laura Coulter. They're our mission partners who have been serving in Nepal. And if you've been following the news at all recently, you'll know that Nepal's been going through a lot of difficulties. Well, they're flying back for a bit of a furlough, and they're going to be coming in to join us for a coffee morning um, this Saturday. Uh, not quite sure what the times are, but I'm sure if you chat to me or to Christoph uh, afterwards, you can find out when that is. And Stephen and Laura are also going to be participating with us in next Sunday morning service, so we'll have a chance to hear from them on Sunday as well. Final thing to say is we're, we're looking forward to two licensing services. Uh, this is something that the Presbyterian Church does whenever a, a congregation gets a new assistant minister. And we are getting a new assistant minister. We're getting Richie uh, coming to probably join us. And you, what happens is you get licensed back in the, your sort of home church. And Richie uh, is uh, uh, from the south, and he, his licensing is going to be taking place in Dunleary Church uh, near Dublin. And that's going to be happening on the 21st of June. We're going, to, we're going to take a coach, hopefully, down to Dunleary for that licensing. So if you want a seat on that coach, you can sign up in the porch outside. And before that, the week before, June the 14th, uh, many of us will know Dave Gray, who went to train for the ministry uh, but was uh, an elder here for a number of years. Uh, he is being licensed here in Kirkpatrick on the 14th of, of June. Uh, so do uh, make a note of those dates. Uh, I'll hand back to Philip now. Thanks, Sam. Uh, each Sunday morning in our service, we take time to pray uh, for some of the things that are on our hearts and our minds. Uh, and this morning, we're going to pray for, for four different things. Uh, we heard earlier from Susan uh, about some of the work that goes on uh, with the Beginner Sunday Club, and we're going to pray for uh, the children and the teachers in that particular class. Um, if you've been following the news, you'll know that this has been a pretty significant uh, week in the life of these islands, both north and south, with a couple of things that have happened. Uh, and also this week that's coming up, uh, there might be some pretty significant movement uh, to happen politically. So we're going to take time to pray for those uh, in power and authority in, in these islands. Um, Sam mentioned that uh, Elma Beasley had uh, passed away this week, so we're going to take time to pray for David uh, and for the wider family. And then finally, this is exam season, so we're going to take time to pray for all of those who are taking uh, public examinations and for those children who yesterday 
got news of which school they're going to be going to uh, post-primary school. Some will have got news that will have made them happy. Some will have found the news that they got difficult. So we're going to pray for them and for their families. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that despite who you are, all of your power and your greatness, you want your people to bring the things that are on our hearts and our minds into your presence and to acknowledge who you are in the midst of those. Father, we thank you for all of the work that goes on in this church amongst our children and our young people. Father, we pray particularly this morning for the work of the beginners class in Sunday Club. We thank you for those 12 or 13 boys and girls who are at that age where they're starting to move out of, of crash and into a more structured form of learning about you. Father, we pray for them that for the, the, the words that they hear, for the activities that they'll engage in, for the interaction that they have with their teachers, Father, in all of those things that they will learn something about you even at that very young age. Father, we pray also for their teachers. Uh, we thank you for people who are willing to give up their time and their energy uh, to teach your good news. Father, would you bless that class? And then, Father, we pray for those in power and authority uh, in both parts uh, of this uh, island. We recognize, Father, that in this past week, there have been a couple of significant moments uh, in the life uh, of uh, the people who live here. Father, we pray for the week that uh, lies ahead of us as our assembly has to grapple with difficult issues uh, that may greatly affect the lives of all of us. We pray, Father, for all of those uh, in power and authority. We pray for our First Minister, for our Deputy First Minister, for our Secretary of State, and for our Prime Minister. Father, for all of those who may have big and important decisions to make this week, Father, would you give them wisdom in carrying out and exercising their power and authority? And Father, we pray for David Beasley uh, as he mourns the passing of Elma. And we pray also for their wider family. Father, we know that you're a God who wants to bring comfort uh, to those who mourn. And we pray for David uh, over these next few days. We pray for all those who'll take part uh, in the funeral service on Tuesday. Would you bring them words of comfort and of peace uh, from you? And then, Father, we pray for our children and our young people as they uh, sit uh, exams at this time of the year and as they receive news uh, of, of their results. Father, we pray for all of those uh, in secondary school and in university who at this time of the year will be sitting uh, exams. We pray for them as they do their GCSEs or their A-levels or their university exams. Whatever stage they're at, Father, would you give them a sense of confidence in knowing that in all of the things that they face, whatever uncertainty they feel at the moment, would you give them a confidence of knowing that you're in control of all? And Father, we pray for our P7s who have yesterday heard what school they're going to go to after primary school. Father, for some it will have been good news. For others, the news will have been more difficult. Father, whatever form of, of news they received, we pray, Father, that they and their parents would be conscious that you are with them at all times. Father, we thank you that you are willing to hear our prayers, and we have confidence that we know that you will answer them in the way that you best see fit. Amen. Now, in a moment, we're going to, to finish our service by uh, singing again together. Uh, if, you do, if you don't need to, to rush away, do stay behind for a cup of tea uh, and coffee and uh, an opportunity to chat uh, together. 
Uh, but for now, let's stand and conclude our service together as we sing one last time. We're going to sing Filled with Compassion for All Creation. You find the words on the screen as usual. They're also in the hymn book at number 632. Let's stand together and sing.
Let's just end our time together as we say together the, the grace. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and evermore. Amen.